Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel Series, an informal chat about writing, television, and the business of writing television. Each and every panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on 826LA, visit 826LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes. For more information, go to thrillingadventurehour.com. I'm also currently a writer on the CW Supernatural. We have three awesome white guys to talk to tonight. Let's get to them. This first panelist uh, fell into the family business, and we'll hear a little bit about that. Uh, his early professional experiences including, include being a production assistant on Angel, uh, and he was David Milch's assistant on Deadwood, where he eventually became a writer in season three. Since then, he's written for the series John from Cincinnati, Fringe, and Rubicon, and co-created Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, Zach Whedon, everybody. Hi, Zach. Welcome. Thank you. Next, after spending three seasons on Supernatural, this gentleman left to become executive producer, showrunner, and developer of the U.S. version of Being Human. Please welcome Jeremy Carver. Welcome. Our final panelist has a wide-ranging background, including stand-up comedy, uh, early drafts of the Transformers and Catwoman films, uh, <laughs> creating the animated Jackie Chan adventures. Uh, he wrote the TV adaptation of Warren Ellis's Global Frequency, which if you can find that script online, which I bet you can, read it. It's great. Uh, other writing credits include Cosby, uh, comic books, and The Core. In 2008, he created the TNT series Leverage, of which he is currently the executive producer and co-showrunner, John Rogers. Wait a minute. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and you know what's really great? I didn't even ask for this. I just knew it would be here. <laughs> Thank you. You didn't bring enough for everyone? Uh, I'm fairly sure nobody else is actually, has actually been called by his network president a functioning alcoholic who's still <laughs> valuable to the company. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Katie, there's whiskey upstairs. Is it's, that still right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for being here. Um, Let's jump right in, and as, as I mentioned, I'd like to hear about your pre-professional uh, career in television. That is, you know, did you grow up watching television? Uh, were you a television fan? Did you know as a youth, or when did you know, this is what I want to do with my life? Um, and I'll start with whoever wants to go first. Okay, John. I'll go. Um, <laughs> actually, no. I was uh, I was not one of those kids of the TV generation, except for Doctor Who, which I watched in the afternoes. Tom Baker was my doctor. <laughs> on PBS? On PBS, yeah. exactly. A, a Tom Baker clap from the back. Uh, 
I was, however, a giant old school mystery and pulp reader, and and I'm pretty sure I've been writing Doc Savage for the last 20 years of my career. And if you look at Leverage, it's like it's a mastermind and four experts. Yeah, all right, it's Doc. Uh, and I really had wanted to be a, a novelist. I really, you know, I, I want to be a physicist, which is what I went to school for. But my hobbies and the, the stuff I read were all adventure books, really. And so, no, it never occurred to me to be a television writer in any way, shape, or form until it actually happened. <laughs> so how did it happen? Where did I mean? Obviously, oh. it came from somewhere. Uh, and you you don't want to do the pre thing with everybody? I just, That's all right. right. All right, dive in. Okay. Um, I was doing stand up in Montreal, actually, mm-hmm. of all cities. I was doing a physics degree at McGill University and had a hobby. I was doing stand up, and uh, what happened is it was right at the tail end of the boom of stand up, and they gave me my own show for like a minute and a half. Uh, back when they were giving every chubby, inoffensive white dude a show. <laughs> and actually, the woman who played my wife in the pilot was Kirsten Nelson, who plays the police chief on Psych. Nice. Uh, that's, <laughs> yeah. So, but what happened is I had become a stand-up because I wanted to learn how to write dialogue and to write crisp, snappy dialogue. And I thought, oh, that's stand-up. It's, it's really, you know. Uh, for, it's, for pros. For pros. Yeah. yeah, because I liked light mystery. I liked that sort of thing. And uh, it just so happened physics geekery Techniques apply well to stand-up. It's a very structured type of writing. Uh, I wound up getting my own show. I wound up doing a couple stand-up specials. I toured the country, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I got my own show, and I came to Hollywood. And after my pilot didn't go, I saw the writers go on to work elsewhere while I was auditioning again. And I thought, how do I get that job where you keep working when you fail? I want that, rather than <laughs> sitting in a room with Jason Bateman trying to get his job, because I'm not going to get his job. Uh, so this first series that they gave you for some reason... was a pilot as with me as a lead, as a, as a stand-up But you didn't have anything to do with writing it. No, it was based on my stand-up, but okay. in those days, I mean, and, and there was a little controversy a little while ago with Roseanne saying, you know, her name wasn't in the created by credit. The created by credit is a guild credit that's quite specifically is assigned to the writer. Uh, so it doesn't matter. It, you always get the based on your stand-up credit. Mm-hmm. Um, I was married at the time. I was married at 25, and there was not a lot of young married guy guys kicking around. So it was all based on my stand-up. Uh, but I contributed my jokes. I pretended I could act. We shot it. And then uh, I found that the same sort of anal, compulsive thing that led me to physics, that led me to stand-up, also applied to screenwriting. So uh, I wrote my three spec scripts. They went out. I got hired on Cosby. Um, not the first one that made everyone millionaires, the second one that ended careers and lives. And uh, what, CBS. What, do you remember what those three spec scripts were? Uh, yes, they were A Friends, A Fraser, and Home Improvement. Sure. Which I'm, da- <laughs> I'm dating myself magnificently at this point. Uh, and then uh, I got hired on uh, by a showrunner who was gone in three episodes, but I kind of <laughs> stuck it out there. And it was so chaotic that, that uh, everyone else was, I can't work under these conditions. And I was, it's my first job. Woo! Free chocolate. Uh, so I stuck around, did three years there, got an overall deal, which is something that doesn't exist anymore, came to Hollywood, uh, and at the same time segued into features, and there was the career. I was just bounced between the two. Well, that's the end of your story. Perfect. Yeah, there's typing along <laughs> sometime in that 15 <laughs> years, but a lot of typing. Well, we'll talk about, uh, in a, we'll talk in a minute about, you know, the nuts and bolts of doing those for First scripts, excuse me, because I think that'll be interesting. But Jeremy, tell us your television background. Uh, as a youth, where do you come from? Were you a, a entertainment junkie like so many of our panelists? Uh, uh, maybe I was, but uh, I can't remember having one particular fascination. I think I was mostly a book guy also. I mm-hmm. was pretty much... Obs- Can you hear me? Is this okay? Mm-hmm. I was pretty much obsessed with uh, westerns myself. Louis L'Amour. I was a huge... Oh, uh, read everyone ever written. Yeah, that's I great. mean, me and my older sister traded them back and forth. And uh, so uh, I was always attracted to those stories, those movies. I'm a sucker for any Kevin Costner western. I don't care <laughs> what you say or what you think. It's just I'm there every time. Yeah, thank you. Changed my life. 
<laughs> Silverado. Really. And, uh, Silverado. Silverado. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, so I didn't have any idea what it meant to be a TV writer mm-hmm. at all. Wait, um, hang on one second. Sure. I want to talk about Westerns for a minute. Sure. Uh, where did you grow up? Philadelphia. Where did this come from? <laughs> I, I think probably it just came from a love of reading, I, I assume. And, and probably so you were given these Louis L'Amour books early on, and you yeah, responded to that. Yeah, these came that. from my oldest sister, sure. and just like, oh, I, I, I... That's not a legitimate question. That's like, <laughs> this science fiction. Where are you from? Earth. <laughs> oh, where does this come from, then, your love of spaceships and the galaxy? Um, He's a young man with an imagination. That's just... Yeah. You love <laughs> physics, dreams. right? Yeah, dreams. <laughs> yes, I have a physics degree. So. <laughs> uh... No, I'm just thinking, and I can only relate to this personally because I only got into Westerns probably in my teenage years, um, I presumably because I was feeling isolated and like I was forging a new frontier. But um, So it's very interesting to me that you, were, you latched onto that early on. I did. I latched onto a lot of books I probably shouldn't have been reading, uh, <laughs> like Jersey Kaczynski, like when I was 10 years old, and it's like, like Holocaust <laughs> stuff and like you know I shouldn't have probably but it just was around what was around my house and mm-hmm. no one ever discouraged me from reading it so so you had an early literary literary love yeah um yeah and you saw yourself as a writer or able to write I I, I thought I saw myself very privately as a writer mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't go for school for writing I didn't go to film school I didn't take class I wasn't in college I was not allowed to be in creative writing because I wasn't an English major, so oh, I just held a grudge. What was your de- <laughs> What was your degree in? Uh, that's an excellent question. It was government, East Asian studies, and Japanese. So, wow. um, so uh, I was headed there. I lived in Japan. I I, I like prepared myself for a, uh, a life doing like business with uh, mm-hmm. in Japan. And oh, interesting. Couldn't speak the language. <laughs> did, did horrible, horrible with languages and and, and miserable. So um, so uh, so when I when I decided to sort of go into writing full time, I wanted to be a uh, a writer director of mm-hmm. films, and that's what I did. That's what I did. Uh, I quit my Japanese consulting job after three months, and I went off and learned how to make a movie, and then I made a movie. How did you learn how to make a movie? I took one film course. I'm scared to say this because we were responding <laughs> over the fact that we never went to film school, but I <laughs> took a six-week course. I took that uh, New York Film Academy. Which, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like a summer camp now, but <laughs> w- when I took it, I was very fortunate to be in a group of like-minded people who were very, very serious, and it was, I think it was six or eight weeks, and it was, it was... I was like, wow, this is what film school is? All I did was watch films and hear about new movies I'd never seen. But, you know. Um, it's not that far off from film school. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it just takes longer. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, uh, but so, so I, did they take you through the entire process from yeah, so writing I to the mechanics editing? enough, and I had, a, I had a, uh, probably uh, enough, uh, I don't even know the word. I don't want to say chutzpah, but, you know, it's like. <laughs> you can say. To not know what I didn't know, and I just went ahead and I did it. And, sure. You know, so. Uh, that was it. So what kind of early stuff did you turn out, either from that or from directly afterwards? Uh, that was all mostly comedy stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember being very clearly in, in the first day, and, uh, and people were saying their influences, and everyone went to the very artsy type of people. And I just went to the movies that I liked growing up. It was just like Diner, <laughs> you know, and, sure. and, and, and all that. So I was like, Barry Levinson, silence. You know what I mean, you know, just like all the guys I like were just like funny guys. You know what I mean? And uh, so I didn't find many. Friends Those are really shootable too. What's that? Those are really yeah, exactly. shootable. Right. So, um, so it was mostly uh, comedy stuff. But I mean, the, the moral of the movie story was didn't sell. Nothing happened from it. 
I was like, oh yeah, this is gonna be my clerks. And <laughs> wasn't my clerks, and then, you know, and then I uh, was in the wilderness for many more years. So. What what was the movie? Is it something that's out there and available? No, no, <laughs> no. It's still in my parents' refrigerator. The sixteen millimeter film is like right there beneath the eggs, I think. But, um, uh, but the, so this was, but the first real experience for yeah. you in making uh, film and making people talk to each other on yeah, the screen. Exactly. Um, all right, good. We'll pick up there okay. in a minute. Uh, Zach, you come from a line of writers. Yes, a long line of writers. Was it a foregone conclusion that you would Basically, this I thought I had free will, but it... <laughs> um, you know, I always knew I wanted to be involved in film or television somehow, and and uh, that writing would probably be part of that. Uh, my grandfather was a television writer, and my father and my brothers were television writers, and... Uh, so it wasn't a huge leap for me to imagine that career. Um, and it must have seemed not as far out of reach as it did for these guys. I mean, yeah. you knew the nuts and bolts of what it actually did. Yeah, to and do I'd this. also seen, you know, people succeed at it in a, a pretty dramatic fashion. Um, so, you know, it wasn't... I, I imagine that there's a lot of fear that goes into, you know, sure. pursuing something creative like that that probably I had less of because... Uh, Everybody else seemed to be able to do it in my family. And, uh, um, yeah, so I, uh, was a film major at Wesleyan and, uh, it's a great, great film program there. And, uh, you know, they, they really, a lot of, they turn out a lot of good writers because, uh, they're really help you analyze how to get a reaction out of your audience and, uh, and, uh, which is, you know, your job as a writer or a director. and What kind of stuff can they teach you in that respect? That's well, interesting. I never heard it put quite that way. And yeah. certainly in my screenwriting classes, we never had that, right. that conversation. Well, you know, it, it was usually attributed to directors and everything, but the, the Hitchcock class I took was probably the best, clearest example of that. And uh, and the, the example that I always cite when I'm talking about this is in... Uh, Psycho, uh, when you spend all this time with Janet Lee and you love her and she's gorgeous, and then Norman Bates kills her, and you spend seven minutes with Norman Bates cleaning up the crime scene. And for those seven minutes, you're alone with him, and so he's the only person you can attach yourself to. And then when he puts her body in the trunk of the car and pushes it into the pond, it stops for a second and you go, Oh no, it's not going to sink. You know, and suddenly you're hoping that this guy gets away with it. You know, the murder of this person who you had come to love. And, and, uh, it's just amazing how he had control, such control over his audience like that. And, uh, yeah, so that was, you know, a sort of small example of what generally the program taught me. Mm -hmm. uh, and did you know, I mean, you must have seen scripts, obviously, uh, around yeah. the house or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so you knew the format. You knew those technical aspects of writing a script. Yeah. And were you one of these kids, you know, these Spielberg kids who ran around making movies? Or uh, um, was it fairly new to you once you got to school? No, I'd, I'd, I'd done a lot of that. I was usually, you know, my brother Joss made lots of movies, home movies, and I was, you know, would star in them and uh <laughs> and uh you know me and my brothers and my you know the neighborhood friends we made a western called the bumpy country and 
a gangster movie called The Rayon Club and uh, a film noir called The Big Thing and uh, a movie called Stupid Man. Um, Creature. And these are available, right? They're all on Netflix. These will never be seen, uh, but only because we can't get the music rights. But, sure. <laughs> yeah. So I did a lot of that. And then the production side at Wesleyan uh, was pretty small, but I did get to make movies there and learned a ton there. We were editing on flatbeds, which, you know, really teaches you a lot about the rhythm of a story sure. and everything. Yeah. Uh, so then, uh, upon graduating, I assume you came here, and I see you, yeah. your resume has a lot of assistant work, which is very interesting. Yes, I had been a production. I took a year off from school and was a production assistant on Angel, uh, which taught me that I wanted to go back to school. Um, <laughs> and then when I got out, I I got a job as an assistant to a guy who produced uh, like celebrity lifestyle stuff for VH1 and. And, you know, Lifetime and stuff like that. Like Celebrity Pets Unleashed was <laughs> something we turned out. And, uh, yeah, and then and then a little bit later I got a job working for David Milch, and that changed everything. How did that change everything? Well, he taught me so much. He's an amazing teacher, and uh, and my writing changed dramatically. I just became a much better writer. And I also got to see firsthand... Um, is sort of the creation of a show that that uh, I could imagine. Not that I could imagine that I could do Deadwood, but you know, it, it, it's not a real plot-driven show, mm-hmm. Deadwood. And uh, and so I saw sort of how I could tell a you know long-form story. And um, can you? I mean, you say, and it, it's it's a big statement to say I learned a lot from him mm-hmm. uh, in those for that first year even. Uh, but can you compare the kind of writing you were doing before when you were just out of school or a couple of years out of school to what came afterwards? Yeah, well, it, it was uh, my writing was very um, I don't know, it was very jokey. It, it was uh, it was lots of twenty somethings, you know, a lot of witty banter between people exactly like me and. <laughs> um, he just opened my eyes to this. I mean, he's such a brilliant writer and, uh, and he's always following the emotional life of his character and letting that dictate the the scene and the plot and, and, uh, you know, letting things evolve organically in a way that I wasn't. And at the time, and, uh, and, you know, it was also really humbling to be around a, a genius like that. Uh, and especially, you know, when you think you're so very special and, uh, <laughs> So, yeah, it was great for me. It was great. Interesting. Good. Well, we'll get a little more deeply into writing Deadwood in a minute. But back to you, John. Uh, When you first sat down to write these comedy specs, Mm -hmm. uh, was the process easy for you? Did you understand? I mean, you say... Uh, Well, it was was interesting because, again, I was kind of... I literally learned screenwriting by picking up uh, Joe Straczynski's book about script writing in the Taunton Public Library of my hometown, (laughs) uh, which... If you ever talk to Joe, a remarkable number of writers tell them that's how they got into the business. The Wachowskis actually learned to write screenwriting from that book. The same thing they get from a public library in their in their hometown. Um, but when I did it, I, I knew that one of the things about the thing I understood about uh, sitcoms was that they were verbal. That you know, there's just a camera pointed at a couch in almost every show, especially in the 80s and early 90s. And so what I would do is something I learned from looking at Chuck Jones cartoons. I would uh, videotape them. For you kids, videotapes like a DVD. It's a magnetic thing. Uh, I would videotape them, and then I would watch them with the picture off. 
uh, until I got the rhythms down, until I could hear them, until I could close my eyes and I could hear what that metronome is. It, it, even now when I write, every now and then, it's a very visceral feeling of when I can hear the rhythm of a scene, all of a sudden, like, that's the timing of the show. You know, it, it's, it's a physical reaction. Uh, and then I would watch them with the sound off and watch the staging and watch the entries and just get a sort of inherent sense of like, all right, how long are these scenes? What do these people do? What are they, you know, could I imagine what his voice sounded like without, without hearing it? And then I sat down and I wrote them uh, and I broke them and I, I got scripts and I did the whole, again, physics background. How many pages per act? How many pages per scene? What do these arcs do? I had different colored pens, which is a running, I still do. Uh, in my writer's room now, the fact I have five different colored index cards that have very specific so do, purposes. Drives what are the crazy. purposes? Tell us that. That's um, interesting. Okay. Uh, I have actually some of my staff writers here. There's, we, we've carved it down to four primaries. Um, uh, the bastard pinks, which I don't trust, uh, the pink cards are what you want to see. Like, just when a concept hits the table, like when we do leverage, like, uh, all right, this is the Russian wedding. Okay, well, what are the scenes we want to see in the Russian wedding? Who are they doing it? Well, we want to see Nate give the sermon. We want to give see the dress fitting, and that all goes over to the side. Uh, the the yellow cards uh, basically track the sort of big emotional arcs of like who's feeling what during what act, where is their journey happening in this particular moment. Uh, the orange cards, which are really the key, uh, the orange cards are the causality chain, and the orange cards go up, and they often go up without going into the the act structure of. Uh, what is the inevitable and and necessary thing for the story to advance from this moment to this moment? It's not necessarily the expected one. It's not necessarily the best one. But if they make this choice, what is that reaction? What is that reaction? What choices does it give them? If they choose this choice, what does that do? What does that force them in? And that and it's something I actually learned from an old pulp writing book that I again got from the public library when I was a kid. Uh, that the guy writing pulps would draw a line down the center of the page and track his story. Action, reaction, action, reaction, action, reaction. And in television, we're writing pulp. That's what we're doing. We're writing, you know, we're trying to keep the price of attention as entertainment. You know? And then the orange cards go up and they give us the structure of the show. And then we look at the pink cards. Oh, that scene that we want to see fits over here in the third act. Oh, that scene fits over here in the second act. And then when we have a rough idea, it goes to whites and whites are the slug lines. Uh, an orange card can be as vague as Elliot fights Russians and the white card is interior boiler room, Elliot fights Russian, you know, and that by the end of it, the, the board actually changes colors and goes from multicolors to two colors to one color to whites. And by the end of it, there's all white cards up there with every single scene number up there. And that's the beat sheet. And that's what the writer goes off and does. And we do that in the room. We break every show in the room. And then the writer goes off with that. Um, usually with a summary written by the writing assistant. Uh, one of my staff writers, Rebecca Kirsch, is here. Uh, she was our writer's assistant as a staff writer this year because particularly at the end of last year, the summaries we were getting from her were essentially outlines. And it's like, well, we could just give this to the network. All right, she's a writer. Um, and, and they come back. They have two weeks to come back. But that's, that's the process, and I have to admit, I'm, I'm monomaniacally methodical. And, and no, that's an extremely that. precise and mathematical process. And, but it's still creative. I mean, the, to me, to me, I, I don't want people to think so I have a formula. <laughs> I don't want people think I have a formula for television. But but I, I don't have like Dan Harmon circles, you know. <laughs> uh, but what it does to me, and, and the same thing when I was writing stand up, is structure is freeing. You know, I know what the story is going to be. I know at no point am I going to have a great scene that doesn't work because it doesn't bring you to the next place and I have to kill that great scene now I'm emotionally attached shit now I'm depressed now I'm a writer as opposed to yeah it, it, that that structure frees us to write the most interesting dialogue the weirdest choices if I know the story is going to make sense I'm not going to get that goddamn network note of I don't understand act three because sometimes they're right you know if you you haven't really made sure that everything sort of 
you know, goes through very logically. Mm-hmm. That's so fascinating. That's so it's so fun something... killing. It's so fun killing. No, it's, it really. it's, fa- it's so appealing to me. I can't even tell you. Um, uh, and it, structure is something we haven't actually gotten to talk about very much on these panels. And I think this is a good opportunity because uh, Jeremy... <laughs> well, bear with I, I me. I would flunk out of that show. In three bear days. with me for a no, minute. no. You, it's cool. You learn. No, you no, hang no, out no. in it. Three you days, totally days, groove to out. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's this is my question. Um, you know, you after a couple of fits and starts, you wound up on Supernatural for a right. few years, which is a very uh, structurally, in many ways, rigid show. Right. How'd you deal with that? Well, I. Uh, the the fits and starts, which you so politely <laughs> refer to, which I really appreciate, I do. They're I do. not your um, fault. <laughs> um, uh, uh, many of them had to do with, I, I had a, we didn't get to this, but I, I sort of backed into TV writing by starting on the development side. And I was sort of oh, like no. brought into developing. So, a- I, Executive or writer? Writer. Okay. Writer. Yeah, in terms of like, uh, I started actually on the uh, pilot side, like mm-hmm. writing pilots or co-writing pilots. Okay. And so the one thing I, I prided myself on was structure, understanding structure. So uh, when we went into super, when I went into Supernatural, uh, Supernatural, I, I assume it's the same way. It doesn't really have a traditional writer's room yeah. uh, in that at the beginning of the season, you talk about the stories, you get your story, and then basically you are alone in your office for whatever amount of time, and you're expected <laughs> to have that story broken on the board in your office, then the boss comes in, you pitch it out, and uh, you know, the whole thing can be erased or whatever it is. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it's a very, it, it, you're not left. Well, I, I want to say sink or swim, but only because I mean, sure. it's a little bit sink or swim, yeah. you know. And uh, so I, I was prepared for that just because of I had come at uh, TV from not relying on someone else's structure before. I had always worked out you know, which is one of the hardest things about a pilot right what's the structure of this new show this new thing going to be so so tell me a little bit about those pilots that you developed before uh getting staffed sure um i uh i uh after my the movie i made uh didn't do anything i i kicked around and i finally moved out to la and i um was writing features mm-hmm. and uh, but not selling features and uh <laughs> and i learned how to write tv much in the way uh that john did and that just taking scripts and rewriting the scripts and breaking down the scripts mm-hmm. and learning what act, what went. I just, I, I had no experience. I ne- I'd never spoken to a TV writer before. So <laughs> my only experience was to take like, I think it was like light NYPD blue and just break it down and discovering for myself A story, B stories. I, again, I, these were fairly alien. Did you have your own names for them? Because that would be great. I was like, <laughs> the gray story. And like, yeah, no, um, just A story, B story. I guess yeah. I knew that. So, yeah. you know, and, uh, and, uh, so, uh, so I don't even know where I was going. Oh, how did I get into? Yeah. Well, about, we? yeah. So you, what, you what figured out the structure of these <laughs> yeah. things, uh, and then you sold some pilots or you sold some ideas. Oh, yeah. What, what happened pilots. was, so it was a feature I wrote basically went to a, a, a company and a couple of producers liked it. One of the producers happened to be in a writing team who happened to have a two script deal <laughs> that fall, and they were looking for a writer to help them write one of their pilots. And I got on that with them, and that ended up being the show Fearless. Which uh, was then picked up for the fall schedule. We went into production, and then it was canceled six weeks into uh, production. Perfect. <laughs> One that was my first experience, you know. Right. So it's like that was an experience where it 
the first thing anyone told me when I finally did come out here was it's all peaks and valleys when you when you're trying to get in here. And I mean, I my my whole everything has been like that. You know, what I mean, sure. one day you get a call from someone saying, "Love this spec, love it, love it, love it," and it's the type of thing that can keep you going. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But you know, it, it, it's where that turns out. You know, it doesn't always turn out mm-hmm. great. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, so. Uh, yeah, so so I did the fe- I, I did the fearless and uh, and there were a couple other projects that I, I, I ghost wrote some stuff. I it's a, you know it was like basically anything I could do to keep going. You mm-hmm. know what I mean to keep moving. It was like you know and uh, it was like keep moving or die basically. And certainly, the more you're producing, the more you're learning about yeah how to do this thing. Right B- before you, before you go on, I, I don't want to cut off Zach, but it's interesting that just that you say the writers room. That experience he had on one hours is far more prevalent than you'll have on leverage, which is that Chris and I both came out of sitcoms, and sitcoms are written that way. So when we started running a show, it came out of two things. One, I was just more, much more comfortable having all the writers around. Two, when you say I'll flunk out of that room, the purpose of that room is so that you're never alone. So that when you're stuck, another writer will go, how about this or how about that? Particularly since we do cons and heists. And the third thing, and this is one of those things in TV that you just never anticipate, we had no offices. Uh, Leverage is an independently produced television show. It's the only one. It's it's actually produced in an old dog hotel on Highland. Uh, the all the writers were in one conference room for the first two years of that show. That sat eight people and got to eighty five degrees at noon because the company had never made a TV show before. That was the only room you could put all the writers. So I think we probably would have sent people to offices if we'd had them, uh, but we didn't. So we wound up doing this, and it wound up becoming. I, I, I think a lot of times in in writing, there's this very sort of, and this is my theory, and I will construct it, and this will run the show sometimes you just don't have offices and that's so you develop a system around it so when you would send people out off of, onto scripts on on leverage they rooms. just go off to they go they go to starbucks or their or rooms yeah. or coffee shops and they became like neighborhood coffee shops where the writers would hang out sometimes and like kind of all right we're both on script i'm on online you're on script. i think that's where i first we'll met Amy Burke. yeah exactly <laughs> like there's three or four right around highland that you'll find a leverage writer hanging out in at some point whoever's on script that's hilarious um anyway jeremy one other uh follow-up for you so you're, it's all a learning process, and you're obviously getting ahead um, as you're producing all this material and making more contacts and all that stuff. Um, and I'm glad that you broke the story on Supernatural, because we've had a couple of the former writers here who hasn't really told about how that show is done. Uh, but going to Being Human, what did you take from your Supernatural experience? How is your room run? Uh, our room is actually... Um very uh, room, it's a very room heavy show on mm-hmm. being human um uh which i love you know i love, so i was teasing only because of the the, the specificity of if, well yeah don't uh, don't fuck up the colors that'll just yeah, derail everything it's yeah. the colors that started freaking me out <laughs> uh, 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 but um but uh we have a very very room heavy very open uh room on mm-hmm. being human and it it it, it the show that's a lot of things that it, it it's genre and it's romance and it's sure. uh desire and want and loneliness and uh i i run the show with my wife anna and uh i think uh we sometimes we're talking to each other on a monday saying how was your weekend we don't we have three young kids so we don't barely talk to each other during the weekend but um so it's a very open place and we try and set the example of uh being as open and in terms of like telling horrible stories about ourselves just to give everyone a safe place to just and, and hopefully that leads to something you know um, but uh, yeah it's very room heavy interesting how many writers do you have on your staff right now uh, right now we have uh, besides us we have one two three four 
five, I believe. Okay. Five. And last year we That's had, besides Anna and myself, we had two. Wow. So no kidding. first season was, Anna and I are considered a team now. So we, had, you know, essentially we had three. Huh. Right. How, how many did you do first season? How many did I write? No. How many did the was the season? Thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For for four people. Yeah. Wow. Uh, right. Uh, we'll get more into that okay. in a minute. Uh, but Zach. Tell us about. Uh, I'm fascinated. Uh, Deadwood, one of my favorite shows. Yeah. Do you guys? Did you enjoy that program? Um, tell us about the culture of that show. Uh, well, it was uh, very interesting. David is is uh, sort of a dominant creative presence, and uh, so and he's a very eccentric man. Um, <laughs> he, the he the way he writes is he lies on the floor. And he dictates to someone who types the script for him, and it comes up on a screen in front of him. And uh, so that means that writing for him, it, you know, it can be a spectator sport. You can, <laughs> you can, and people do sit around and watch. And uh, while that is odd, it's a great uh, thing to see for an aspiring writer because. Uh, like you were saying about analyzing the rhythms of the speech, you know, you're listening to him go and, and, uh, you start to get into it and you see he's reworking the same line for sometimes an hour and a half and, <laughs> and you see what he's trying, the rhythm he's trying to get to and why it isn't right for him. And, and, uh, and, you know, then he'd finish a scene and he'd turn around and he'd lecture for an hour about why the scene went the way it did and, and what surprised him about the direction the scene ended up going. And what do you think the purpose of those lectures was? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it, it was really nice that he did that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, th I think he, it's fascinating. I think he has just a teacher bone in his body and he enjoys that. And, uh, I think that if he wasn't a writer, he, he would be a teacher. And, um, and he's also very impressive and he likes the sound of his own voice and um no but he's he's uh you know he's a showman also he he uh he can really talk and he can and uh you know so i think it's fun for him and but it, you know it, it was a great place to be so all the writers and and there'd be a lot of interns too sitting around and watching this and then um if he hadn't written something, he'd say, go write a version of the, that Bullock scene to one of the writers and, and they come back with something and then he, he writes from that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, and he would encourage people to write versions of scenes, um, whether or not he was going to use them just as exercises, you know, for his interns and he would, you know, tell me to do that stuff. And so it was through that, that he eventually, gave me a script. Oh, interesting. So when you're given a script on this show, how does it work? Oh, well, um, you would sit in the room <laughs> and he'd say, go write a version of this scene. Okay. And the way Deadwood worked, and uh, I guess all David shows work is that he would not write the script before we started shooting. He would only write the scenes that had to be shot the next day. And he would write based on what locations they had. So, they would say, we need 10 pages in the gem saloon. And he would, you know, go and do that. And then he would, he has this incredible mind. It could somehow create the show that way, you know, create a structure and a, and a story that works. But he also was very hands-on with editing in the editing room and would spend a lot of time in there shifting things around. And, 
Um, yeah. Was there discussion among or with the writers? Uh, was there a big picture discussion that went on or was it really all in David's head? Uh, there was. He would. It, it, the process would start with him sort of giving one of these, you know, a, a conversation, mm-hmm. but uh, a long conversation about where this episode was going and everything. And and that could all change, but it did start with that. And at the beginning of the season, there'd be long conversations about what was going to happen in that season, yeah. and and uh, you know, eighty percent of that stuff we didn't get to, but. Um, you know, it was helpful to have heard, you know. Can I, can I ask a question? All right. This is from because my line producer would have a gun in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of times you shoot out of sequence. So did he actually, he's like, all right, I have, I have a shooting day tomorrow at, uh, at the, the saloon, and I have a shooting day tomorrow out on the street. Could he in his head write stuff in the saloon knowing he would use it later for a street day? I mean, was it ri- basically written in sequence? No, no. It was written completely out of sequence. Wow. That's um, madness. I don't yeah. even know that, like, that's... Doctor Who would be boggled at that. I don't... Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. And and the line producer did have a gun in his mouth. Um, but Deadwood was great. I will do this! Deadwood was sort of a wonderful scenario f- for the way David worked because we built a town, right. and there were two stages right there, and so everything was right there. And, you know, it wasn't like we had to go out on location ever. So, uh, you know. Yeah, but did you have, like, on a Monday, he would write a scene and you'd all be sitting around like, what? how's that going to pay off? What's the setup for that scene? Oh, you'll see on Thursday. Like, I, I, <laughs> well, I'm boggled. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he would always know. He would sort of reverse engineer things. And, wow. Yeah, I, it was really wow. impressive to watch. Yeah, yeah no kidding. Uh, tell us how... You know, you've gone on to a kind, of, a bunch of different kinds of shows after that, between Rubicon and Fringe. Yeah. Uh, how did that first experience inform those, if it did at all? Well, that's a really unique situation, Deadwood. So I don't expect to ever be in some a situation quite like that. Um, Fringe was a, a very room heavy show where we broke out every beat, that kind of thing, which was a great thing for me to learn because I had no. Uh, experience in that and and uh rubicon sounds sort of like supernatural in terms of we would do a little bit of outlining but it was you were mostly on your own and then you'd work through the outline with the showrunner and um yeah so you know i don't think i'm gonna ever end up in my career creating a room where i lie on the floor and dictate (laughs) to a screen but uh it was it was a great educational tool very interesting what were each of these uh and I'm certain the answer is yes, but maybe you can expound on it a little bit. But were, were each of these experiences different as they were uh, creatively satisfying to you? Uh, yeah, uh, the the really the room heavy stuff for me was a little bit more difficult because hmm. y- y- there just isn't that same feeling of ownership. Um, I didn't think when um, you know you're essentially write, writing this the script with eight people and a lot of the time also the script would be written by eight people it would be go off and write these three scenes you go write these three scenes because it has to be turned into the network tomorrow um so i didn't find that as satisfying uh rubicon was fantastic creatively because we had so much free reign and we got to go produce our episodes in new york and be on set and everything and I learned a ton there, so uh, that for me was a was a sort of a perfect scenario. Interesting. Do you, uh, Jeremy, where do you guys shoot? Uh, we shoot in Montreal. And do you send your writers up? 
Uh, we do this year. You do this Last year. Last year, I was the only one who went there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't money. Well, you couldn't. <laughs> you only no had four of you. <laughs> someone had to be writing <laughs> right, the scripts exactly. while someone was up there. Uh, uh, and what about you, John? Where do you guys shoot? And do uh, we shot writers? in L.A. our first year and shot in Portland, Oregon the last three years, which I would what? recommend highly for anybody. It's it's a fantastic city with a great there crew. There are a few shows shooting up yeah, there. Yeah, Grim went up here. there and a couple of movies have been up there. Great crew, great city. Really and do you nice. send your writers up? Yes. You writers, go up, uh, writers prep out of L.A., with a remarkably awful Skype connection for the meetings. <laughs> um, really impressive that they built a giant company out of something that I can't, I can't see anyone. And, uh, and then they go up for full production. And they're on, they're on, uh, they get the joy of the set. Uh, and also, just speaking about creative freedom, it's interesting. You can even, even have variations of this because although we break in the level of detail, I say, part of the joy I have as the showrunner is I, we send the writer off with the outline and then it's their script. And then it's great. We don't write. Occasionally, someone comes up with a line. It's like, I remember that one. But once it's your script, once the story's broken, it's up to you to make it work. And when they come back, part of the fun for me is like, ah, yeah, that's a nice line. I didn't expect that to work that way. Just you know that that to me is the that's the fun part of my job because everything else is grueling, horrible show producing. (laughs) So to have a script land and read it and go, ah, that's funny. I didn't know that would play that way. And yeah, breaking it so collaboratively. do you do much? Do you wind up doing much rewriting at all on on your uh, uh, staff scripts? Not so much. First year, a chunk of rewriting, and it really was just me. Kind of the first year, just only because it was a first year show, and it's only really in one or two people's head at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but never giant structural rewrites. Mm-hmm. You know, it, sometimes structural rewrites because we lose a set. Or we'd get a note that didn't work, but very rarely. Um, it was more, and that's not quite that person's voice yet, but by second or third year, no. And then this year, we had an almost entirely new staff and a little bit of rewriting. Again, sort of back to that first year, but not a ton because we were in year four. So people knew how the characters talked and they knew how the show worked. Uh, we were all kind of creating it uh, that first year. And it, it was genu- genuinely a collaborative creation. You know, we'll always say nobody, nobody wrote Parker quite as well as... Uh, uh, Jessica Reader and Russell Gen, uh, two of the writers. It was their first job, first year, and they kind of somehow got that character's voice, and 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 we missed them. You know, they they got her that character in a way that nobody else has quite landed. You know, uh, that's the fun of it. Jeremy, uh, so now you have all these writers working with you. Uh, has that been jarring? I mean, clearly it's taken a load off to some extent, right? All these writers. He has twos <laughs> and twos of writers working for him. It's hey, like, coming from four to. <laughs> yeah. To uh, seven or eight, that's that's a big deal. Um, how has has breaking story changed, or are you still go, doing things the same way? On, on, in, in on terms being of human, the way I used to do it, or the way that you did it even last year. Uh, it pretty much the, the the same way. We actually adapted a, a system from uh, that my wife was more familiar with, um, which I guess would generically be known as like the Berlanti system. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably much more um, uh, helpful in terms of our show because, again, despite the genre parts of it, um, it is ultimately a, a, a relationships. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been a very helpful uh, uh, model. What uh, is that model? Uh, I'll probably butcher the explanation. <laughs> um, and well, we'll have her on next time. <laughs> yeah, please. They and, uh, won't know. They're not writers yet. <laughs> butcher it. Um, in in short, you're going through. Um, uh, we've got you know three main characters, so uh, we, we're going through basically. Uh, we've got our one board for each character, and we just like take their storyline for the episode. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. so it's just like what's Sally's story. What's Aiden's story? What's Josh's story? We make sure 
those are working absolutely correctly as standalone stories. And then we have a day, which is uh, the uh, smush. Uh, I'm totally cribbing from the Berlanti system here, so <laughs> I'm positive he calls it the smush, I think. And uh, so the smush would be you take those three stories, and now we see where they all land on the board. And then uh, uh, the next final step would be the flesh or flush. I always forget which one it is, and they always <laughs> remind me. Uh, it's either the flesh or the flush. I think it's the flesh. You're fleshing out each scene. I'm never there. I'm, like, drunk half the time, okay? But, um, uh, but uh, so it's the flesh where we're, <laughs> we're working through the beats of each scene. And uh, so then by the end of it, that's what we have. And the, the, the thing about our show is we, we very often uh, – uh, the, the secret sauce of our show, I'm just speaking purely for being human, is – it always works best when it's our three characters in a room together. I mean, because they're the they're the heart of it. No matter what journey they're on, you want them together. And, and uh, so, uh, we very rarely um, do the group beats in anything I just described. It's like it's not till we get to like the smush flesh that we say, okay, these are where the stories are going to intersect, mm-hmm. and these is where they're the, to. And, and we're very very careful about making sure there's you know multiple intersections in, a, in an episode because um and that's basically it and then they go off the outline and uh there we are do you do you guys on leverage have a secret like that uh where we know our show is working when we do this like trick the multicolored index cards weren't enough um <laughs> no I, let's dig in yeah uh you know what I, that's absolutely you, true you, and you, it's you, you know what so you, self-aware for here's the show. thing it's we're we're a kind of weird procedural like but but we're not investigatory so we don't have a and b and c stories I and mean, it's it's a really Odd, unique bastard that kicks my ass every year. Um, but you know the episode's working when the room energy goes up. When it's like everyone has a way that they think this scene could really work. And and what that says to me is like, okay, this story has given us a lot of really good choices, and we're probably going to make a lot of decent ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, or somebody has a really great piece of research. My job is just generally no horrible stuff that will then en- that will then enable the crime stuff. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of sit back while everyone else is fever dreaming about the plot and I'll go, oh, you know, this actually, this is how you money launder. Oh, this is how you hack an ATM. Oh, you know, that. And then we kind of construct it. it it's really, it, Downey says, uh, the other showrunner says, yeah, you yeah, know, it's a good story when it hits the table. And it, it really is when it hits the table because the beginning of the year, it's always, uh, what do you got? Ah, this, that. And this year they were very nervous because I forgot they were all new hires. It's like, oh, I could be fired. No, relax. This, that. And I'll, I'll tell you, we hired a writer based on her pitch. Uh, always when you go into staff, have some ideas. They're not going to steal it. If they steal it, they were already working on it. Relax. She came in, Jen Cow, and she said, uh, you know, you're a heist show, and I want to do like a classic diamond heist with lasers and heist and everything, but I've been studying open source agriculture, and it turns out that potato genetic uh, codes are really, really valuable, so I want to do a classic diamond heist, but the potato's the diamond. <laughs> with like the potato in the briefcase with the packing and the potato, and it was, I was like, uh, you're hired. I, I really, I've, I have nothing else to say other than welcome to leverage. I, wow. It was, and it's Susan at the table, everyone, oh, this is what we're doing, and then and then we lay okay and it was kind of cool because another new writer Paul Gio who's an upper level writer we hired so I have a friend who's I can't say the name of the company he ran security at he was a security company in a big agriculture business so we called him he said oh yeah these things are big giant compounds like the Google compound this is how the security works and so we just we just laid the character stuff on and, and we were saying and again how do you get in how do you get into one of these things who gets in without a background check I said well we do these 
bullshit PR tours all the time, like school kids get in all the time. School kids! And then, all right, two of our characters have to pretend to be teachers, and one of them lost a kid, and he can't deal with kids. And it was, it just, it, it broke, the really good episodes break in three days. And that's how you know. That's, that's it. That's a good episode. And then the, some of the really great episodes break over the course of the year, but they're hard fun, they're hard fought bastards. You know, we had one episode, it took us two years to finally get to a script on. Wow. Amazing. Um, it's fun. That's when you know it works. It's fun. Yeah. It's when the, show, the job is good. Um, I want to talk about that hiring uh, for just a second because you've been on the other side of that, uh, being yeah. hired for staffs. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience. Uh, was there a time when you knew, I've, actually, I've absolutely nailed this? Uh, was there a time that you knew, I blew that interview? Well, what are the, the signs? Um, I, don't, I don't really know. Uh, what are the signs? <laughs> I, I just try to go in with something intelligent to say mm-hmm. about something. Um, so you've done your homework. You come in. Yeah. Uh, do you come in with pitches as, as John suggested? Um, I, on fringe, I think I had some stuff, mm-hmm. but it, it never came up in conversation. It, 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 you know, it was a very sort of laid back conversation and, and, uh, that was my first staffing job and it, I had that interview and then it was like six weeks or something before I heard and that was a tough six weeks. Um, you know, and I kept on hearing from my agent, like, they, they say good things, but, you know, there's just, they've got to hire 15 upper level people first. And um, so, yeah, that was tough. But, you know, I, I just try and have something smart to say about the show and what I think about it and what I think would be cool. And, you know, and, and something that you you believe you know something that you honestly could get excited about yeah i was actually going to ask about that because i presumably like any of us you've gone up for shows that you were not crazy about yeah yeah uh how do you fake it um well or can you even i i think you find the things that you you are positive about that you do like and you talk about those things and you don't talk about the other things yeah. you know <laughs> don't really definitely don't talk about the other things <laughs> Advice. Yeah. Uh, in staffing for both of you, what are you guys looking for? Uh, uh, for, for me, I, I think it starts with the uh, the script. I mean, but this is the first time I've been on this side of you know. What are you looking for, Jeremy? I don't, I, you know, I, you know, it's my second year looking for it. You know, I'm, I'm still learning what I'm looking. For. But uh, uh, it starts uh, pretty much with the writing. You know what I mean? And uh, and uh, so then when I meet the person, uh, you know, it's my wife and I. We have different personalities and things. That, you know, you, you're looking for someone that you want to be. I'll say this to you both ways because I've been in a lot of staffing meetings and, and not gotten jobs and gotten some jobs and thought I had a job and et cetera, et cetera, and, bl- and walked out knowing I blew it, you know what I mean? And I've been in every possible, like, walk in. I was supposed to pitch a whole season. No one had ever told me. I walked out literally – 30 seconds later. I was like, I'm very sorry for wasting your time. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're under very stressful conditions, you know, when, 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 when things are moving and you're in production. So you're looking for people who you, uh, uh, I think the, the writing is the first sort of bar of entry, right? And then you're looking for people that you can see yourself spending many, many hours a day with. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, so for me and and for my wife Anna, you know, I hate to looking for nice people. You know what I mean? No, life is too short to be in a room full of jerks. You know, and uh, or or people who are 
in it for something other than you know what you're all there for and um and, and there are plenty of people who are um and uh and then you're starting to look for the specific um skill set that someone might have I mean, sometimes you're hiring someone with a comedy background or with a genre background like this year it was very important for us to uh to beef up the the genre side of things um and uh because and and, and then you're looking for um, sometimes upper level writers because you know last year it was just Anna and myself. Because uh, not only did we have just two writers last year, but we we were done with them. They were paid out and gone uh, by episode five. So for the rest of the season, it was just Anna and myself. Oh, so God. we were looking for um, uh, uh, people this year who could step up and and and, and take a more of a production uh, uh, some of the production stuff off of our shoulders. So. Uh, so the, the great writing, great person, and, and, and if there's something extra and unique, uh, you, you're looking for someone who wants, sorry, I'm rambling, but I, I, want someone who, who, I want someone who is not afraid to be open in the room and, and share something of themselves, uh, particularly with this project, um, because so much comes out of our, our writers, uh, their experiences, particularly this year. Um, and uh, so that's a nutshell right there. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, that's sort of a nice distillation of a lot of the things we've heard uh, thus far mm-hmm. from folks in your position. Anything to add to that, or is that about cover? Uh, no, I mean, to, to, to us, I mean, you, you kind of know. It's, I always say it's like putting a pitching staff together. It's, uh, you know, he's a lefty. That's good. You, when you read these samples, it's like, ah, that's funny, that's charming. But the, the big thing is you can, when I was a stand-up, you know, an audience can always tell when you're lying to them. They just can't. It's it, no matter how dumb the audience or how smart the comic or whatever. They just if you say something fundamentally untrue, they will not laugh. Uh, and that's always stuck with me. And whenever I read a script, even if it's not the type of script I like, I once I once brought in a, a female writer to a meeting because she'd made me give a shit about it without a trace. <laughs> I was like, wow, I can't read another one of these, but I can't stop turning pages. This is fantastic. This crime she's written about, she cares about. This makes her angry, and I, I want to meet her. You know, uh, that That's the big thing, is to just... You can only be you, and the, the eight to ten hours in the writing room a day is will burn away all the fake bullshit you might think you can use to not be you. So you look for the script, script is in the meeting, when you're in the meeting... Are you this type of person? Are you this type of show? Maybe you're not that type of show. That's okay. Go do another show. There's no stress. <laughs> there are a lot of shows. There are a lot of shows. There's uh, an infinite number of shows out there right now. It's, it's stunning. Yeah. And then there's the internet. Yeah. Um, I want to talk very quickly, and then we'll get to you guys, but uh, I feel like we've only scratched the surface. But I want to talk about uh, pitching and developing your current uh, series for you guys and what it, whatever your pitch experiences are because I'm afraid we don't know each other that well. <laughs> um, but John let's start with you and I want to talk first uh, about Jackie Chan oh uh, I, will, I will actually <laughs> I'm really curious about it all right I will actually this is a, this is an illustrative story because I, I, I will be didactic for a moment uh, <laughs> I always say that this is how the 21st century works find something you love and love it to death and just just be you, just be the writer you are, put your head down, because if you could sell out and it would guarantee success, fuck yeah, sell out. Um, but it doesn't. You'll fail anyway, probably, and then you'll feel bad about yourself. So just do the thing you love. I was writing on Cosby, and my manager, Will Mercer, knew I loved uh, Jackie Chan. When I was a stand-up, I traveled around with a VCO with Jackie Chan bootlegs in the car so I could watch them in these hotel rooms. And he said, Sony's looking for somebody to develop the Jackie Chan show. So I'm in. So I went, met with them. I had an idea. I knew 
kid shows how to make it like there might be toys there were never any toys but like this is this is the structure this is how it works here's the story this is what's attractive about him jackie isn't a fighter jackie's best fights are when he's running away from someone and so this is what's a, what why kids will like him he's not a fearsome lead he's an adorable lead that's why he has such a big career and then i get to meet jackie and i, I did a bunch of stuff with him but um when I pitched it, we went with Jackie, and it really was. This is the show. This is how it works. Uh, and uh, I then wrote the the season opener and uh, brought in Dwayne Capizzi and David Slack, who had a much more animation experience because they didn't really have any animation experience. And they eventually went on to run the show. I really just broke the first season with them, wrote a couple episodes. That was it. Uh, and then they went on to run. But it, it's illustrative of do what you love because at the time my agents desperately did not want me to do that show because it was animation. I was about to get an overall deal. I was about to be a producer and they're like, this is the dumbest thing we've ever seen a client do. It's cartoons and it's a shitty $5,000 an episode fee for you to be an exec producer and creator of this show. I'm like, I love it. I love Jackie. I want to do it. (laughs) Then they made a hundred of them over the course of three years and that shitty cartoon paid for my house. (laughs) And it was, and it brought me to, I wound up doing a giant rewrite on Rush Hour 2, and I did the original unproduced draft of Rush Hour 3, because Jackie trusted me because we'd made the show. And it really was, that's that's the big lesson I took away from that, which is, you never know which one of these things is going to work. So you might as well do what you love, and you'll make mistakes, and you might screw it up, and, and sometimes it works out. That's great advice. Uh, before we talk about leverage, I want to jump over to being human for a sec. Um, was this brought to you, or did you go in and pitch on it, knowing, uh, I mean, Sci-Fi was looking to do a remake, and you were one of many writers who came in? Uh, yeah, I think it was the latter. Okay. Um, I think uh, I was on Supernatural. My wife was on, uh, it, not, there's, there's nothing left of it now, so I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, was it genre? It was a model show uh, last year. Lip- I can't remember. Lipstick Jungle? Beautiful life, thank wow. you. And uh, I, I think that was the show she was on. I think. Um, and uh, anyway, so it was our agent actually uh, who a- asked or inquired, "Would we be interested in working together?" Um, uh, we'd actually met on the staff of Fearless, uh, that uh, the ill-fated Fearless. Um, and uh, we talked about it. We thought about it. We understood why the mix of our backgrounds might be appealing to them. So, yeah, we went in and pitched on it. I, I, there were other writers pitching on it, too. What was your take on it? I mean, obviously, we've seen your take on it. But what do you mm-hmm. think it was that cemented it for sci-fi? Um, I think sci-fi was very much looking to do something that was uh, unlike anything of theirs that was on the air. Hmm. And we... Uh, uh, n- I think it was our emotional take on it. Um, I think season one, uh, if anyone has seen it, um, for large arcs, we stuck to a lot of what they did in the the BBC version. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, season two is a great departure. Um, but uh, I I I think it was our uh, emotional take on the characters. I hope. I, 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 and plus, you know, but you also got to know when to give the red meat a little bit. You know what I mean? So you know, we were both very good about. You know, it's like. I'd been on enough pitches to be like, you know, okay, and then, you know, there's kissing, and then the vampires, you know, so, it's like, you gotta know your audience also, you know what I mean, you gotta know what they're looking for, so, um, uh, so I, 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 I think it was the emotional, I hope, we'll see. Well, it, it certainly or, works. Or I guess we did see. Guess, yeah, <laughs> it absolutely works on right. You know the show's been on, right? <laughs> <laughs> the dumbest panelist yeah. ever. <laughs> Uh, Zach, tell us about your uh, pitching or development experience. 
Uh, well, I don't uh, have a great deal, but I I generally like to write things rather than pitch them because I'm a better writer than I am pitch man. Pitching's really hard. It's a whole different skill it set. It is a completely different skill set and one I'm still working on. But, um, you know, if I'm that excited about it, you know, I should be, I should want to write it, you know, and, uh, and so that's sort of my approach now, because I think that, that the script will be able to communicate it better than I can mm-hmm. verbally. And, uh, and so that's my strategy right now. That makes a lot of sense. And it's similar to what we were talking about earlier, yeah, uh, just having something to show. Specs are, uh, honestly, the development cycle, particularly in features now, but it's starting to bleed into TV. Uh, write the spec. Honestly, write it so that the that when the executive you pitched it to is explaining it to his boss, he can't possibly fuck up the pitch. He can just give them the script and go, this is the thing I really love that we should make. And they look at it and they also can tell what kind of writer you are. Uh, pitching's a bear. You know, it's just a monstrous thing. I'm lucky because I was a stand-up, so I have I have a cheat that I'm not nervous about that sort of thing. But I know so many really great, much better writers than I am who cannot get in that room. It's hard. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I would suggest seriously, if you have something you really love to, to do exactly what you said, which is write it. You know, That's just get it advice. to someone. That's no matter how you do it. Yeah. Uh, tell us very briefly about pitching and selling leverage. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you briefly, but it, I'll actually start with Global Frequency because it's a similar thing. Okay. It was an adaptation. But what I did was when Global Frequency, when I heard it was optioned, I had my agents bully them into a meeting and I literally walked into the Warner Brothers and said, hi, you bought Global Frequency. Yeah, like yesterday. Okay, here's the pilot. And I pitched them out the pilot and I pitched them out the first season and I told them what the box art on the DVD looked like. I was an insane fan of this comic. And they said, I think we're supposed to take more meetings, but frankly, we're a little frightened. So uh, we shot it and it was, it, was, it was great and it was a heartbreak. But I quit TV. I was out. I was done. And um, it it just breaks your heart. You shoot a pilot, and by the middle of the pilot, with actors you like, you're going, I see all five years of this. I see the stories are going to have. And they let me put together a shadow staff because it was so close to going. And Ben Edlund was on that staff. I mean, that was my staff, was Ben Edlund and two other guys, Diego Gutierrez and and Dave Slack. And uh, and Ben actually pitched the story so good it made me want to quit my own show. That was, there was, Ben finished his pitch, and I was literally sitting in the writer's room like this, like, don't show fear. (laughs) Because. He's much better than I am, <laughs> and it's my show. So that just killed me. I didn't go back to TV forever. But what happened is I was sitting in my garage drinking with Chris Downey, who's a friend of mine who runs Leverage, and we were talking about, at the time, why Thief had failed and a bunch of other heist and con shows had failed, and we were both fans of it. And it was kind of coming out of a, a conversation about where's the show you could watch with your dad. When I was a kid, I could watch Rockford Files with my dad, you know, and and, and uh, my thing on it was the problem with these heist shows is they were serialized. When you watch a heist movie or show, you want to see the magic trick. You want to see how it's done. You want to see the boom. You want to see it at the end. And his thing was, I want to, I want to see a show that I could watch with my dad. I want to make something that's just both edgy enough that you enjoy it, but yeah, you, know, you could watch it with your kids. I would love to have the Matt Weiner. I carried the script around in my back pocket for four years story. Literally the next day, I had lunch with Dean Devlin who said, yeah, TNT wants to do this show. And I said, let's do a gang show. Let's do a group. I said, well, my buddy Chris and I, who you've never met, have talked about it. And we pitched it and we sold it in two weeks. And it was just one of those. But it, to a great degree, I will say it's probably because it was the show I was writing in my head for 20 years. I just didn't realize it. It was Doc Savage with crime. It really was. Chris and I sat down to break the characters and it took us a day. And almost all those characters are exactly as they are in the show. And it really was like, oh, I had a TV show back in the back of my head. I just didn't realize it. And we shot it, uh, we shot it that fall. We, interestingly, the writer's strike came up almost a week after we wrapped. So Chris and I wouldn't cross the line. So we didn't see the edit. 
So Dean, who's a buddy of mine, was cutting the show and would call me like, oh, the, the pilot looks great. Great. You know I can't come look at it. And so the show got picked up the day the strike ended. They called us the day the strike ended and say, all right, you go. Just get in here. I said, great. We have to go watch it now because we haven't seen our own show. And we watched it and went, oh, it came out like we'd hoped. And then staffed it. And, and then, boom, we were up and running. Uh, but, yeah, that was it, was it was just one of those things where 20 years of bullshit, weird research that we'd kind of done in our lives all folded together into something you could put on television. That's amazing. Terrific. Um, wait, have you guys all worked with Ben Edmund? Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's like <laughs> Ben Edlund's like one hundred percent of people at honestly, this table. <laughs> it's one of those things. He's one of those guys that I was listening to the commentary on the Venture Brothers, and you hear those guys go, "Yeah, we weren't going to do it, but Ben Edlund said we should write this down." He like floats through television writing history, <laughs> like this kind of like Zelig like character, like like this in the back of the Zabruder film of television. Just yeah, just, he wasn't on the grass, you know, but he was near the fence. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and the podcast we did with him is up on iTunes, so go check it out. Uh, let's take some questions from you guys. Remember, folks, questions begin with a W or an H, not with an I. <laughs> <laughs> Who has a question? Wow, buzzkill. <laughs> no. I used to be a high school teacher. Really? Doesn't show? No. <laughs> question, yes, right here. Hi, um, this is for uh, Zach. Um, I just uh, had a question as far as uh, Deadwood. Um, I saw an interview with uh, Milch talking about how he originally pitched the show, and he originally wanted something like, a, I think it was like uh, the Christians uh, being persecuted in ancient Rome, and then that became Deadwood because they were already, HBO was already doing Rome. Right. But I just, I guess for you as as a staff writer, was there anything in the back of your mind that kept saying, I'm doing a Western, or was there this sense of, like, I have to have Western archetypes, or... I know you were, uh, obviously, like, un under right, right. Milch's uh, vision, but it just was was there any of that sense? Because it seems very much a different kind of... The fact that it could have been an ancient Rome story, right. instead it became a Western. Yeah, I... I uh, there, there, there wasn't that feeling of, we need to be hitting these archetypes from Westerns and everything. I think that they, some of them showed up, you know, just because they do. And, uh, but what he was really interested in was, you know, the formation of a society and, um, and so, you know, and putting interesting people in that situation. And, um, so you ended up having, you know, uh, Alma, the Garrett's Alma Garrett and her husband, you know, those, those characters are, you see them in every Western and you see Swearingen and Bullock, you know, uh, you see those guys in every Western. But I don't think it was a conscious choice. We need to have these stock characters or anything like that. There's, uh, I'll actually say if something weird happened third season of Leverage, uh, fourth season of Leverage. Uh, I'd come back from directing and they'd broken a story about a sweetheart scam, about a, um, they, they, uh, women who marry rich men and then kill them and then move on and, uh, the revelation of it. And so I wasn't around for breaking of this. I was up directing and the revelation is it turns out there's a ring of them at this when they go to the Hamptons and find that the reason that they can't pin down the specific suspect is because it's always a different woman. There's like five of them running. And I had this moment of revelation and Chris, you remember in the room, it was, 
This works for almost any show. <laughs> We've come here looking for the Black Widow. We found out there's a ring of them, Buffy. We come here looking for the vampires. It turns out there's a nest of them, Rubicon. We came for the Russian spies. It turns out there's a ring of them. <laughs> it, it actually transferred across almost every genre. We actually, for fun, and because I was drunk, we broke the show in every genre <laughs> over the course of the day. Um, but, you know, themes and characters and, and pain is universal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in whatever setting you put it, it might just be the, the language you need to speak to get it out of your head. Yeah, I think it, it act, that actually speaks to a bigger question about how you approach the story that you're telling, uh, and and sort of what appeals to you guys in telling the stories that you tell. Uh, you know, Ben Ecker, my writing partner, and I argue all the time about Deadwood versus The Wire, and I come down on the side of The Wire every time, not just because you're of wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Not just because you get closure, <laughs> um, but because I feel like that's a show that is approached from character, and then the thematics are built on top of that, whereas Deadwood always came from the thematic, and the characters were fit into that. Um, how do you guys approach the shows that you write? I mean, Jeremy, you talked a little bit about the emotions of being human, and obviously it's an emotionally driven show. Uh, but the blood and guts is appealing too, mm-hmm. you know. I think we approach it from uh, thematics. I think uh, uh, we 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 often, uh, you know, we we've got these sort of I'll call them archetypes, although they're just our characters, you know, in terms of the <laughs> the, the ghost <laughs> and the uh, and and the vampire and, and the and the werewolf, and and, and we are uh, the, for Anna and myself, it's always. I want to, in the worst possible way, beat up these characters as much as possible every week uh, because I want uh, to find this place where people watching hopefully can relate to it in some way and say, wow, that might have been a vampire romance or something, but I can relate to that metaphor or whatever it was. So um, uh, so uh, for us, we try to have no sacred cows in terms of who or what we... Or damaging, or and uh, so I, I, I think it's um, thematics. <laughs> Choose that sure. for a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's interesting. This question also of beating up on your characters because uh-huh. that's always the most appealing thing you can do, right? Is right. what eight ball can I put this guy behind? Uh, on leverage, though, you're not so serialized, and I feel like no, that's an no. easier thing to do in a serialized was, show. Yes, it was a very specific choice, and I'll admit there's. <laughs> Metastructure elements to that, uh, and I think it's one of the reasons we've done okay. Is that uh, I remember Harlan Ellison describing Doctor Who once when I was very young uh, in an interview, say saying, "You can sit anyone down and go. He travels through time and space. He writes wrongs, and you're in, <laughs> and you know, and you are charmed, and you okay. I, I can follow this particular story. And for me, on a show, and one of the things that appealed to me about Global Frequency and, and this was leverage is uh, they're five thieves. They're Robin Hoods now. They punch rich white guys in the neck. Oh, cool. I'm in, and then you're in. And if that's the kind of show you want, and the global economy happens to be collapsing right before your premiere, aces. <laughs> uh, and that, and that's it is we the thing that we kind of live with we kind of live in what i call crime world and capital c capital w and it's a very corrupt and very sort of morally ambiguous world and our characters walk through it and our characters are kind of morally ambiguous people uh they're not villains they are heroes in the sense that they do heroic things but they have their own little journeys to go through so it's kind of a mix they the, the show is a theme uh the show is a theme about how power must constantly be challenged and sometimes you have to go outside the system in order to do it uh which 
every about three months, someone in Atlanta at TNT realizes that the Thebe becomes horrified and calls us. And do you realize we have a socialist show on our network? Yeah, sorry, too late, fourth season. Uh, but the story of the characters is, you know, how does being in this sort of broken, dysfunctional family eventually make them better people? And kind of something we're going into fifth season now is, can better people actually do this job? Uh, you know, part of their job is being outside society. If part of healing means you can rejoin society, where where do you stop being useful as an outside Avenger? You know, so it's and at the same time we do clever lips and, and things blow up. But th- that's where it <laughs> but comes that's from. That's the candy. Yeah, right? it's that's the, the fun of it is what's the setting, what's the what's the world we live in, and then let's throw our characters in and have them do interesting stuff and make bad choices. Cool. Uh, other questions? If you guys don't have them, I have Come a lot. Come on. So. <laughs> I the group has never been this quiet. Did we cover everything? Come over here. I think they're a little awestruck. <laughs> they are. They are. Is this their first Whedon? <laughs> By the way, I realize I, I, we've actually met before. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we were at Comic-Con, and you were talking to Felicia Day, and I fucking shoulder-blocked you out of the way to talk to her. I like, apparently some dude, oh, this is Zach Whedon, that's nice. Hi. <laughs> That's what I want to show. That's just sent some guy across the bar. You are amazing. <laughs> also, we'll be selling my first Whedon's out in the lobby. <laughs> These are my training wheels. Um, uh, in terms of serialization, a lot, of, a lot that comes into it is characterization, like uh, accumulating. And some shows resist serialization. Other shows trade on it. Um, do you ever find, like, wanting to be the other show sometimes if things get too complicated or you want to make it more complicated? That's a good question. Yeah, how do you how do you deal with that uh, growing your characters? She's a regular; she gets it. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, I, uh, I think you uh, hit on something. Uh, our show is fairly sprawling in a way, um, and particularly again, we're right in the middle of season two, and we've introduced a lot more uh, characters and worlds and backstories, and, and it's fairly sprawling this season. And and there are are times in the back of my mind, I'm like. Season three, close ended. <laughs> Everyone goes home, punching out. You know what I mean? And uh, so it, it, it's incredibly rewarding, incredibly exciting. And um, but it, it is um, there's a tremendous weight to it. I mean, one of our writers, Keto, is in the room, and 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 she would attest it. it it's uh, we're sitting here, uh, we're in the middle of breaking the pilot, and, and I'm sorry, the uh, the finale, and. Uh, Everyone knows where we want to go, but you know, uh, and I'll, 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 I'll speak out of school. I keep on saying no, 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 because I know where we want to go also, but we're just not getting there yet the way we want to get there, you know, because it's, and, and, and so do I wish sometimes that, um, it was more close ended? Yeah. But, um, that's the show that we've chosen to make. <laughs> I mean, we had some close-ended episodes that went like, you know, like he was talking about three days, done. Love it. Couldn't, I mean, embrace that thing and just like, wouldn't let go, you know. But, um, but yeah, it's, I, I, in my mind, I'm always debating which is, uh, which is better, which is more appropriate, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, Keith Giffen, when I first started writing comics, which is the hardest writing you will ever do in your life, uh, taught me because he'd written Justice League and these characters that have been around for 60 years. And that's a lot of stories. <laughs> and he taught me um, consistency, not continuity. 
The character should always appear to be roughly the same character that you understand, not acting out of character, but if you're out of order or you've missed something, suddenly nothing's confusing. And again, it's, it's a very distinct uh, difference, uh, but it's kind of interesting. You got like a really great mix up here because I'm, I'm just a pulp writer. I mean, and he's writing a serialized thing. And you've worked with some very arty, very, Rubicon was an incredible show and Deadwood's an incredible show. Uh, we, we have signposts of where the relationships are going because I'm very big on writing in pairs. Like, you know, what's that? This relationship will advance, not this character. This relationship will advance. This relationship, will, and so we know this relationship will start here and end here at the end of the year. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes things happen like in the middle of the season, and you go, "Oh, that's not working," or you know, "That is working." Uh, but those go up. But as we're writing the episode, it's like, "Oh, this would be a good one to do that beat." that we really want to do. Or sometimes an episode will present itself. We did a, a great one where a heart is stolen in an airport and they have 45 minutes to find it without alerting the authorities because as soon as they do, the person will go to ground and it's just gone. So this, it's a ticking clock. It's our real-time episode. And it was like, well, Nate Ford lost the son at 11. Plainly, this is his episode. This is about him and grief and anger and, and that sort of thing and how far will he go. So for us, we kind of dip into the serialization thing when when we know it's there and it's a tool, but it's not our main arc. Our stuff is to do fun episodes every week. But I th- honestly think without serialization, you can't make a show anymore. I mean, if you do that, the audience at some point stops giving a shit about these characters because they're just... Audiences are very sophisticated now. They want a story told. They want to see characters change. So ignore it at your peril. Yeah. Why, when do you think that change came came about? I have my theories. Uh, I'm, I'm, I once... Wrote on my blog that if I got an Emmy, I would walk over and put it on Joss Whedon's table. So, uh, I've said that publicly, so I'm not just sucking up because you're here. That's, uh, th- there was there was a shift in young television viewership, and it's by the way, it hasn't changed in older television viewership. There's a very specific generational CSI. will tell you that. Yes, there's you know there's I don't even know who's starring in CSI now. People are still watching it, but CSI is more part of the Holland Ellison's glass teat uh, agonization of television thing. Um, but there, there's an entire generation of television watchers that it is lean forward entertainment for them. They want to be engaged the way you engage people emotionally and the way you engage people emotionally is through characters. That's, that's such an ironclad rule that I, I can't even, you know, I, I don't even think coming out of my mouth to be called bullshit, you know, <laughs> and that's without that, without that tool in your toolbox, you know, you're just not going to get people. We counted one year in the, the three months of premier fall season, 36 shows launched between cable and network. How the hell do you get people to notice you and then stay with you? And it's because they, they have to give a shit about your characters, no matter what show you're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's it. That's it. But it, that is a, the big difference between like younger generation viewing and older generation viewing is that right there. That's fascinating. Uh, I want to ask very quickly, um, because Zach and uh, John, you guys have both been involved with this, about uh, writing comic books. Uh, How'd you get into it, and how was the process for you? I got into it uh, after Dr. Horrible, Dark Horse, wanted to do some comic stuff, and so I was uh, given that duty. (laughs) You were tasked Um, with it? Yeah. Um, But I was excited to do it, and it was, for me, though, as you said, incredibly difficult and time-consuming, amazingly fun. Because at that point, I was a staff writer on Fringe, and... Um, didn't have a ton of creative control over that show. Um, so to be, and it was a big room and you're dealing with executives and everything. And this was a world where I got to, I had to talk to two people and it, the thing came out exactly as I imagined it, you know? And it was the first time that I had that, ex- that experience. And, uh, 
So I loved it and, and I still love it. And, um, what title are you doing now? Are you still doing a title? I am not doing anything. I, I did Terminator for a little bit last oh, cool. year. Which and you guys should check out. I really liked it. Oh, thank you. Uh, I hadn't read a Terminator book. Was that, IDW? Was that IDW? It was Dark Horse. Okay, cool. Yeah, really yeah, Horse. Um, but I really enjoy it. And it is, it's really difficult, and I'm still learning so much about it. I mean, every time I write one, I realize that I don't know anything. And, you know, uh, you get you spend so much time on it and – creating the description of each panel that that uh you can get lost in that and sort of imagine the reading experience to be like the writing experience where they're going to sit and analyze every inch of every panel but if there isn't a lot of dialogue in it you're it's going to breeze by really quick and uh and that was something that i i did this uh, shepherd book comic and um people have been waiting for a long time for it and it's, I think, too quick a read. It, uh, and I think people were disappointed because of that. And, um, you know, it wasn't something that I realized until I got the hardcover book and sat down with it and was done with it in 45 seconds, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting, and I, I love it. Uh, I've written two books, I, plus some anthologies for Boom. Um, the first one was, uh, back in the day, I had uh, Keith Giffen, they were doing the relaunch for DC, one of the infinite number of relaunches they do, and they were going to get rid of a character called the Blue Beetle, which those of you on comics fans have been around forever, and Keith Giffen had written. And they were just killing him. And they said to Keith, what would you like to do? And, and Keith said, I'd like to do a young superhero story. Like, you know, what's it like to be year one? And you're not pals with Batman, and you're not, you just, you have weird mutant powers, and you can't, you know. And I had just written on the blog possibly the most abusive thing I'd ever done uh, where I said that the way that DC Comics had treated their characters, the Silver Age characters, could only be explained if the Silver Age characters had broken into their house, killed their father, and then had rough sex with their mother in a clown costume on the table in front of them. <laughs> and then burned down the house. <laughs> then maybe you could understand why DC Comics was being like this. So immediately after I do that, Keith Giffen calls me, and because he's read Mage, he goes, oh man, it would piss them off so much if I hired you to write this book. <laughs> Because that's Keith. And, and they had said, Keith, Carte Blanche, whoever you want to hire. John Rogers. Ah. <laughs> but he knew I was coming at it from a point of love, which is like, I want to read a comic book that I could give to my 12, at the time, 12-year-old nephew. And so we wrote Jaime Reyes, who turned out to be a really big character. And he's on the side of the WB now, which, by the way, is all Keith. I'm not, I'm saying I was just there to lift his stuff. Uh, but it's, it's insanely hard because the, just from a writing standpoint, you have way too many structural things to deal with that you're not used to. Uh, the issue is the structure. The page is a structure. I had to rewrite something the other day because I realized, wait, that happens on an odd number page. It'll be this side. I'll see it if I turn this page. I have to flip that to an even number page so it's a reveal. Um, the panel. Uh, how much, how big you want those images to have, like in directing, you know, three panels are different than five panels, different than six panels, different than nine. Uh, and so you're editing, it's like editing as you write. And it's brutal. And then there's stuff like, God, they're just talking. I should have them walking. What's behind them? Yeah. And it's not like the old Marvel way where you would, the artist would draw the issue, then you dialogue it, which is insane, which is they actually used to do. It's like showing up to script television and it's already been shot and they go, just put words in their mouth. That's what they used to do. Uh, and and so it is, I had lunch with Mark Wade the other day, who's written a ton of comics, and I said, I just can't write faster than two pages of comics an hour. I can't get past that. And he went, no, that's the speed. That's 20, he's been doing it 30 years. He's like, no, it's pretty much everybody's speed. It's just, it's, 
it's a great writing experience. And I would really urge everyone to give it a shot because web comics now are so easy to do. It is a zero entry thing for you to find an artist that you trust or love or go on DeviantArt and find someone, just wade through the horrible hentai stuff and find an artist and, uh, you know, and try to put something on the web to storytell because you have total creative control and you can let people see what's in your head and you're making something. I mean, make something. That's the big thing. I mean, Todd Stashwick did, uh, the art actor did a show called, a uh, webcomic called Devil Inside. It was optioned as a show. Um, that's another good way of getting people who are not writers, executives to look at stuff and go, Oh, I see the show. Yeah. Which, you know, which brings up a thing we've talked about in the past, which is don't just write something and leave it on your hard drive. It has to live in the world. Screenwriting is a dead object. If it's a novel, a novel can be a great novel in your desk. Screenwriting is, is weirdly dead until it's collaborative. It's the, it's the most ass breaking collaborative art form you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it is literally like here is who had that great thing. Was it Craig Mazin or John August said, um, and so here's the, here's the problem. The writer's the only one who's seen the movie already in his head, and he's basically trying to explain it to everybody on Monday morning. <laughs> and then they have to go spend $2 million making that, if it's a television show. And the director, meanwhile, has to figure out what he's going to make. It's birthing it, and that, that's a lot of the conflict. Uh, great advice. Uh, thank you to our panelists, Zach Whedon, Jeremy Carver, and John Rogers. Thanks to everyone here at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics, and to 826LA. Thank you. Thank you.